One of the greatest temptations that you and I face as believers in the Lord Jesus is to desire approval from the world. We like to think that if we could soften up the hard edges of the message of Scripture, then more people would believe, right? Now, our motives are good. We want people to believe. We want churches that are full. We want more people to hear about who God is. But there's an issue that comes with this. It always does. If we start to whittle away at some of the harder parts of Scripture that people are uncomfortable with, we will find that what we create will no longer look like the original. The Christian faith is not a renovation project. We're not trying to remodel it and make some of it more user-friendly. The Christian faith is founded on the revelation of God in His Holy Word, and and we are to desire to hold fast to this. To hold fast to what we have received. Not warp it into whatever we desire it to be. This has been a temptation since the earliest days of the church. How many times have we come across places in the New Testament where Paul is admonishing the people to hold fast, where he's addressing some sort of teaching that is false, that is turning people away from Christ? It isn't just an issue in our day. It's an issue in every age. But we must hold strong to the faith that is revealed in Scripture and what we were taught by the apostles. And as we look at our passage this morning, as we return to the book of Hebrews, we see the author encouraging his audience to hold fast to the faith, to stay the course, to continue to believe what they were taught in Christ. And so as we come to this passage, there are some important messages that we need to hear. This is not just a message to these Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to turn away from the faith. This is a message to you and I. So to understand this, we're going to outline it and put it into three points like we usually do so that we can navigate it and apply it. The first section that we're going to look at this morning will address life within the church. We're going to see how we are to bless others and how we are to live contrary to the world. There is a way that we are to build up one another and care for each other. And this is such a vital part of who we are as the people of God. And secondly, we're going to see how we're to live in an unbelieving world. As I mentioned, We are tempted to desire the approval of the world. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that our Lord himself did not find favor in the eyes of the world. And so we should not expect anything different for ourselves. We are to seek the Lord and not the favor of the world. And finally, we see that we are to seek something greater than what is in front of us. 
We've already seen, and as we were in Hebrews 11 and in other parts of the book, how the heroes of the faith have always looked to and hoped for what they could not yet see. And we are called to seek the city of God, the one that is to come, just as the heroes of the faith did in the past. We are to desire that greater city. And so this leads us to praise God and to offer our lives as a sacrifice to Him. And so with those points lining out where we're going today, looking at the life in the church, looking at how we withstand the pressure from an unbelieving world and looking for that city that is to come, we head into this 13th chapter of Hebrews. And as we have seen throughout the book, the author of Hebrews is calling the people to stick with the faith in Christ that they have received. In the face of persecution, they're tempted, like you and I would be, to abandon the faith and to go back to the rites and rituals of the Old Covenant. And we have seen the author of Hebrews making a case and unfolding it as he has been spelling out clearly how all of these things of the Old Covenant were just pointing to Jesus in the first place. Why would you go back to something that's just telling you and showing you who Jesus is? Well, having made this case very convincingly, we are now seeing how these people are to live in the body of Christ as they continue in this faith that the author has been making a case for. And the first thing we see is that they're to let brotherly love continue. If they are going to remain strong, they've got to do it together. They can't do this on their own. Christians are brought into the family of God because they've been united to Christ. And Christ is God the Son. So they're united to Christ, God the Son. And so we are all children of God together. God is our Father. And so we are all brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so we're to love one another. And again, it's not just a casual care here for one another, having warm thoughts for one another. We see that we are to love one another as family, and, and this gets fleshed out in a real tangible way for us here. Because it says that the first thing we're to do is to show hospi- hospitality to strangers. Now, this, this would have been something that they would have been very familiar with, because back in this time, the Jewish people had been spread out all over the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire by all these exiles that the unbelief of the Hebrew people had sent them into. God would punish them, send them into exile, and not everybody would come back. So these people are spread out all over the known world at the time. But these people who were faithful would return to Jerusalem for the festivals, like, say, the Passover or the Feast of Booths. And they would need places to stay. They would need to be able to go somewhere. And so they would have this general practice of letting people stay with them. They would entertain strangers. But they knew that they were fellow Hebrews, fellow Jewish people. And so they're called to continue this. The author of Hebrews here is is advocating that this general practice 
of being hospitable should continue in the early church. If you see sisters and brothers in Christ who are in need, you're to show hospitality to them. Care for them as though they are family. We wouldn't turn away family, at least most of our family we wouldn't turn away. No, um, we wouldn't turn away family if they were in need, right? And we should do the same for our family in the faith. And the author of Hebrews makes an interesting statement here that those who have shown hospitality have entertained angels. Now remember back, you, you know a story where this is true. Remember Abraham, who showed hospitality to the three men who came to visit him? And the idea here is not that we're going to be hospitable to everyone in, in hopes that some angels will come over for roast and potatoes. That's, that's not the big point here. The idea is that we should take in others and be hospi- hospitable because we don't know who we're helping. And I think this is an important message for you and I. I, I really believe that this early part of the book of Hebrews is so important for us because in our cult- culture, haven't we lost hospitality in so many ways? How differently is it from when you were younger? How we were hospitable to one another? It's a lost art. We've closed ourselves off from the world in so many ways. And as Christians, we should be looking for opportunities to show hospitality so that we can be a blessing to others and we can share our blessings with others and we can be blessed by being in contact with these people. And so as this this passage continues, we're encouraged to care for those in prison and though as though we are in prison with them. And we're also to remember those who are mistreated because we are all one body. Now as we think about this verse, we're reminded of the persecution that the early Christians were facing. They are in prison for the sake of the gospel. That's what he is talking about here. These people who are in prison are there because they're being persecuted for the faith. And so the author encourages those reading this to imagine that they are where this they are there with them because they could easily be there with them because they're holding to Christ. And the reason that he gives here that they're to feel this way is because they're one body. If one of them is being persecuted, they are all being persecuted. And we see this idea again of what Christians are. We're family. We're all connected by our union with Christ. Now in many ways, this challenge to us is really difficult because we are so removed from persecution. Now, we hear stories of those mistreated for the faith, but it's difficult for us to fathom the persecution that some of our brothers and sisters are experiencing. It's difficult for us. We struggle to understand, but still, we are called to remember them and feel as though we are being persecuted with them. So it's important that we think of all our brothers and sisters and pray for them as we think about their circumstances. And as we move to verse four through, verses 4 through 7, we continue to see how those in the church are to live. And this is really, really important. We're to hold marriage in honor. And we look at where marriage has fallen to in our times, and we, we think that perhaps these issues of sexuality and unfaithfulness are somehow unique to the time in which we live. But as you've heard me say so many times, 
That, that's not the case. The early church lived in the midst of a pagan culture. And in that culture, pagan spirituality was deeply connected to their sexuality. And those in the early church would have felt the same temptations that we have today. It would have been easy to compromise on what God ordained as the standard for sexual practice. What we face today is not something new. It is not something that is enlightened in our modern culture. We're not archaic because we don't agree with it. It's always been around. It's a part of pagan spirituality. And the church in the first century existed in the midst of this. And instead of succumbing to it, the church spoke into these things. And over time, the ethic was changed because they spoke the truth of God into their culture. It wasn't easy, but it happened. And we can see what the author of Hebrews has to say about these things here. We need to hold marriage in honor among all. This union between a man and a woman is to be held high and supported, and we're to keep the marriage bed from being defiled. God meant it when he commanded his people to be pure and not commit adultery. And there's some strong language here as it tells us that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So why is this such an emphasis over and over in the New Testament and in the rest of Scripture? Notice, it isn't telling people to abstain completely and deny themselves. This isn't about staying away from all of this. No, it's about God giving parameters. God gives these parameters. His, the idea of marriage between a man and a woman establishes where this is to lie. And it reflects his nature, and it reflects the created order. And we're called to be faithful because God is faithful. God did not just arbitrarily say, I've got an idea for a rule here. Don't commit adultery. That wasn't what was happening. When God made the Ten Commandments, he gave them to reflect his nature. We understand that God values life when he says do not murder. We understand that God values and is faithful to us when he says do not commit adultery. These things reflect who he is. And we're called to obey them because he knows what's best and we're to desire to look like him. And from that topic, that important topic, we see another quick switch to another important topic. We go from sexuality to finances. We're called... I just thought of this. Isn't it interesting that both those things cause trouble in marriage? Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> we are called to trust God and keep our life free from the love of money. We are not to find our security there in our finances, but instead trust God, for he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And we can trust God to keep his promises. And when we reject the love of money, what are we doing? We're acknowledging that we're to trust in this benevolent nature of God. God is a God who gives and a God who cares for his people and loves them. And we see here the author of Hebrews using some citations from the Psalms. We trust God and acknowledge that he is the one who ultimately helps us. We, we don't need to fear what people can do to us because we have a loving God who provides all that we need. And one of the things 
that God provides for us is leaders within the Christian community. Now, it would be easy here to spin this as about being respecting or being, it being important to respect leaders in the church and to follow them. But look at what the emphasis is on here. It's about imitating their way of life. And that's a humbling statement for those of us who are in authority within the church. Are we as those in positions of leadership within the church who are showing a godly lifestyle? Before we can say that people should follow leadership within the church, we need to be thinking about how we ourselves are following Christ. And this doesn't only apply to pastors, elders, and deacons who need to think about this. It also applies to teachers and others in the church in positions of leadership. And this should not only humble us, but it shows us that we should be praying for those in these positions. We need to be lifting up leaders in the church in prayer, that God would convict them and help them to lead holy lives, and that the Holy Spirit would give them a desire to grow in grace through the power of the Word. But at the same time, as we're praying for this, as we are concerned about these things, we have to remember that we are called to seek out those that we can emulate in the faith, those that we can learn from, We're to grow by looking at others. Again, this is not a singular thing that we do. The Christian faith is not me on an island. We do it together. And so we're to seek out those that we can emulate in the faith. And I guarantee you that if you were to ask someone for help, they would be honored to help. They would be willing to help and disciple you and to help you foster growth in the faith because it would help them grow too. And so this is what life in the church is to look like. Faithfulness, living together, caring for one another, trusting in God, not in ourselves. And so as we move on, we are now going to see what life looks like when we are trying to live this life of faith in an unbelieving world. And I want to start out by just focusing here on verse 8. The call to do all of these things that we have just talked about is rooted in who Jesus is. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change with the current of the culture. He is who he is, and we know who he is because of the revealed word of God. We aren't going to get some new revelation that will let us know that God has changed his mind. This is why we look to the word alone to know who God is. In our age and in every age, there have been those who claim to have secret revelation from God. But we do not look to these fallible human voices, but instead to the unchanging, infallible word of Scripture. We know that we can trust God's word and the truth that we read here that Jesus does not change. His word will not fail. And so when the world comes to us, we want to stand with our feet firmly planted on the rock instead of the shifting sands of the world. 
That's the call here. That Jesus is the rock who does not fail. It does not, he does not move under our feet. He keeps us steady. And so with that truth under our feet, we want to look at the big idea that we find in these next chunk of verses here. Because as we have seen, we know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're called not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. As we look at this, we see the author of Hebrews telling them that their hearts are better off being strengthened by grace than by food. Now this seems like a pretty obvious statement for us. Well, of course. I'm going to get a whole lot more spiritual stuff from God's grace than I am from food, but we have to remember who he's writing to. What were the rites and rituals of the Old Covenant based around? Feasts. They felt as though they were receiving grace by doing these rituals. You, as I said, you and I can't possibly imagine how any, anybody would think that food would strengthen someone's heart. But, specifically, he's talking about this temptation that these people have. They are considering returning to practices and rituals of the Old Covenant. And we don't know exactly what was going on with this. We don't know what is being described here, but I think our best guess is that those who are trying to get Christian believers to return to the Old Covenant, they were saying that they weren't getting any benefits of God without the food. They weren't eating the feasts. But the author of Hebrews reminds them of what has been said throughout this book. Those rituals, those feasts, were just pointing to Jesus in the first place. There is a better altar, we read, where Jesus was sacrificed. And without faith in him, even the priests, the ones set apart, can't go to it and eat. The grace of God is better than the rituals. And so these people who are putting this temptation before these people, they're unbelievers. They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They're an influence outside the church. And so these people are to reject it. And once again, the author of Hebrews goes to the Old Testament imagery to make his point. And we've seen this so many times in the book of Hebrews. You probably learned more about how the Old Covenant worked from the book of Hebrews than you ever knew. That's how often he uses this imagery. So in the Old Covenant, when the animals were sacrificed, the blood was in the temple, but the bodies were taken outside the camp, outside the city, and they were burned. Well, why was this? There was some important, some important imagery that was taking place here. The animals had the sins of the people put upon them, and they didn't belong in the presence of God. They didn't belong amongst, uh, amongst the people, so they were taken outside the camp and destroyed. That's what happened. And so the author of Hebrews tells them to reject this influence that's coming to them from outside the church by going away from their false teaching. And what does he say? Jesus suffered outside the city gates, and he made his people holy through his precious blood. And so let us go to him. Let's stop worrying about what they're saying is happening here. Instead, go to Jesus, flock to him outside the city gates. Get away from those who are coming in to us, trying to lead us astray. And now while we don't have the same situation, what the author of Hebrews is saying here still so applies to you and I. 
why would you and I listen to and follow unbelievers when we can go to Jesus? Yes, it means that we have to go against what the culture tells us. Yes, we will be outsiders in an unbelieving world. But Jesus is there. The one who suffered and died for us is there. So let us go to him and away from the allure of the world. It may mean that we are persecuted, but we remember that Jesus suffered on our behalf, and so we should not expect the world to love us. If they hated our Savior, they're not going to like his followers either. And so may we turn away from the unbelieving influence and instead cling to the one who suffered and died on our behalf. And so as this passage closes up, we see our final point. We are called to seek something greater. And why do we do this? Because this isn't our home anyway. The city of man is not our final destination, my friends. Instead, we seek a city that is to come, the city of God. It is what the heroes of the faith sought after, and we're called to seek the very same thing. And truly, we know this. It just makes sense. When you have a destination in mind that is better than where you were, do you look back? If I'm traveling to a vacation destination, my mind isn't on what is behind me. My mind is on what is in front of me. Why would I look back to the city that rejected my Savior? when I can look to the city that he has secured for me in his precious life, death, resurrection, and ascension? Why would I be concerned with the city of man when I know the Savior who secured the city of God for me? Why would I desire the city that hates the one who made me and the one who redeemed me? And so we seek the city to come because Jesus has secured it for us. And what does that do? We read here that it leads us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. When I look to the city to come, I can more clearly see the evil of this world and the deficits of this world. And so I praise God that he has made me a citizen of the city to come. And what else do we do? We do good. And we read that we're to share with others. And so this whole passage has come full circle, right? We're right back to where we started We're being admonished to do the same things we saw at the start of the chapter. But now we're being told that these are a sacrifice of praise that pleases God. But remember, these are sacrifices of praise. These are not sacrifices. These are not things that we do hoping that somehow God will accept us. Instead, God has already accepted us. And so our lives are now a sacrifice in praise of what he has done for us. And so, in light of these great truths that call us to hold fast to the faith and to seek the city to come, I want, to leave, I want us to leave here today with two quick applications as we step out into an unbelieving world. The first is that I want us to remember that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I think this is such an important truth for us in our time. I, I really do. Because the world moves fast. 
It's hard to keep up with what we are supposed to feel, what we're supposed to think, what we're supposed to do by the standards of the world. And if you want to be someone who pleases the world, you're going to struggle to keep up. And frankly, it will never be enough. It never will. As I said earlier, Jesus was rejected by the world, and so we shouldn't expect anything less as his followers. What we can do is realize that the one who was rejected by the world did so for us, and it was to bring us to himself. And that status as his children will never change. If you are in Christ, you have been united to him, and he will not let you go. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he will not leave you or forsake you. And we, so we can trust that his word is forever. We can trust that it will not fail. So trust in Jesus and in the power of his word, for that is where peace and hope comes from. We can't get those things from the world. The world can offer you those things, but they can't give you what you have in Christ. So cling to the eternal one who gives you these things, peace and hope and joy abundantly. And finally, I have a challenge. Look for new ways to live out the love of God that has been shown to you in Christ. Our passage this week started out with this admonition to let brotherly love continue and to show hospitality, right? As I mentioned, these are things that we see less and less of in our world today. But they are to be things that believers in the Lord Jesus are dedicated to. As we strive to look more and more like our Savior and less and less like the world, this is one of the places that it can be glaringly obvious that you serve King Jesus. But it doesn't come easy. Finding ways to love our sisters and brothers in Christ takes work. It means that we seek out ways to build up one another in the faith. It means we are hospitable to one another and care for one another, even in the midst of our crazy busy schedules. No matter how busy we are, we're still called to love one another. And so may we find new ways to do this. May we be a people of God who seeks to build one another up as we seek that city that is to come, where together we will praise our Savior forever, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.